This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. Today, we continue our series featuring some of our favorite interviews of the year with Sterling Harjo, the co-creator of the FX series Reservation Dogs. Season 1 and 2 are streaming on Hulu. Here's the interview we recorded in September. If you haven't seen the hit TV series Reservation Dogs, the title should give you a sense of it. Set on an Indian reservation in Oklahoma, it's about a group of teenagers and the people surrounding them. The quirky way some of the characters constantly quote pop culture and use it as reference points seems to owe a debt to Quentin Tarantino films. The series is part comedy and part drama, about teenagers wanting to break away from the reservation and all the seeming dead ends it represents, while also finding reasons to stay. The characters face generational differences on the reservation, and the confusion of growing up caught between traditional culture and pop culture, the spirit world, and rap music. The series shows the importance of Native traditions while also mocking how tradition can be turned into sanctimonious pop culture cliches. My guest Sterling Harjo is the showrunner and a writer and director on the series, which he co-created with Taika Waititi. Harjo belongs to the Seminole and Muscogee Nations. He's made independent films and documentaries about Indians in Oklahoma, where he grew up and continues to live. He also co-founded the indigenous comedy group called the 1491s, a reference to the year before Christopher Columbus landed in what is now America. Reservation Dogs is the first and only TV series where every writer, director, and series regular is indigenous. The second season of the FX show is now streaming on Hulu. Let's start with a scene from the first season. One of the teenagers, named Bear, has been planning to leave the reservation with his friends and start a new life in California. He's just been knocked down after being hit with paintballs by a rival group of teens. When he opens his eyes, he sees an Indian warrior from the spirit world mounted on his horse and dressed in the kind of traditional warrior clothes you'd expect to see in a Western. It's a funny scene. But the advice the spirit gives at the end is uh, pretty good advice. Bear is played by DeFaro Wunatai, and the spirit is played by Dallas Goldtooth. Oh, young warrior. Looks as though you've tasted the white man's lead. It's only paintballs. I've had many brothers and sisters meet the same fate in my time. Are you crazy horse or sitting? No, no, no. I'm not one of those awesome guys. No, I'm more of your, uh, I'm more of your unknown warrior. Yeah, you know my name? William Knifeman. I was at the Battle of Little Bighorn. That's right. I didn't kill anybody, but I fought bravely. Well, I didn't actually fight. I actually didn't even get into the fight itself. But I came over that hill real rugged like. I saw Custer like that. That yellow hair. He was sitting there. Son of the morning star, that guy right there. I really hated him. So I went after him. But then the damn horse hit a gopher hole, rolled over and squashed me. I died there. This horse actually, oh, and now I'm meant to travel the spirit world, find lost souls like you. The spirit world, it's cold. My nipples are always hard. I'm always hungry. Got it. Being a warrior, it's not always easy. You and your thuggy ass friends, what are you doing for your people? It's easy to be bad, but it's hard to be a warrior with dignity. Remember that. In my time, we gave everything. We died for our people. We died for our land. What are you going to do? What are you going to fight for? Ah! 
Ah, I just with you. But for real though, listen to what I said. Marinate on that. Oh. I love that scene so much, and I love the series. Sterling Hartrow, welcome to Fresh Air, and thank you for Reservation Dogs. Um, can you thank talk a little you. bit about coming up with a way to both satirize pop culture images of Indians and also just like, come up with really comedic Indian characters, but also to create a sense of understanding of the importance of traditions? It's a lot to do all at once. Yeah, I'm real quick, Terry. So I'm a big fan. I remember being in college, driving around, listening to your show, and I was like, I think I'd made, or I was like attempting to write a film, I believe. And I remember thinking to myself, I'll know I made it when I get on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. <laughs> so thanks for making my dreams come true. Oh, today. Okay. <laughs> thank you so much for that. You made my day. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you know, I think that 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 character in that scene. Um, is crucial. And I think, you know, most of the time people are very precious with native people and like, you know, you don't, this is no laughing matter. And, you know, this is very serious and stoic. And that's kind of how, you know, the world is trained to view us. Um, And we realize like we need to bake in, in this show, like uh, permission to laugh with us. And I think that that spirit character he comes in at this moment in the pilot, and it's like, if I ask most people in the world, draw a Native American, that's what they would draw. They would draw an Indian that was dressed in buckskins from the 1800s. Uh, they wouldn't draw me. They wouldn't draw any of the characters on the show. So it was almost like giving people some familiar territory and then turning it on its head. And it allows the audience to say, okay, isn't this funny? Like, we still think that Native people are like this. And yeah, in history, you know, some of us were like that. But uh, isn't it isn't it ridiculous that we still think that they are? And so it gives people per- permission to laugh. I think it sort of welcomes them into Native humor and allows you to kind of get your footing as you watch the rest of the show. Well, we're on the subject of permission. <laughs> yeah. I had asked you before we started, like, what word do you like to use? Do you like to use Indian, Native American, indigenous? And the term that you don't want to use is Native American. But some people say that, you know, as a white person, like white people shouldn't use the word Indian. So before everybody kind of gets annoyed with me or I get annoyed with myself <laughs> or you get annoyed right. with me, just right. help me out here. Like what 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 works? Um, for me, I mean, look, I grew up, my grandma said Indian. So I, I'm not here to change what my grandma said. And it's what I know. Um, I'm sorry that Christopher Columbus got it wrong, but that's what we call <laughs> ourselves, you know? Um, and, and, and like... We also, I also say native and I say indigenous, um, just depending on where I'm at and who I'm talking to. I will inter, those are all interchangeable to me. So, and Native American is just a mouthful. You know, I don't have to sit around. It just, it's just, you know, it wastes time. <laughs> all right. So, so uh, the series is called Reservation Dogs, uh, an homage to Reservoir Dogs, Quentin Tarantino's film. What did that film mean to you and the sensibility that he created in it, which was really something new? So... It came out when I was in college, and it was right as I discovered that I could be a filmmaker. Um, and you know, there's something about Tarantino's love for cinema. It's like that's the same thing as growing up as a native kid in rural Oklahoma. I, you know, my father had a friend who worked for the cable company, and that's the only way that we got cable. So I was able to watch movies uh, for free because his friend 
hooked us up with a cable box that allowed us to watch HBO and Showtime. So I was a, you know, I just be, became immersed in like in movies and pop culture. MTV was out at the time. And I don't know, like, I, I think that when you're from a rural community, you know, that's kind of how you live your life. You almost like live your life through movies and through pop culture. And it just felt like the right, I mean, first of all, it's a catchy title. I'm not going to lie, but Dyke and I came up with Absolutely. that. But like, yeah. and, and then it was, um, well, if we're going to have this show where these kids are living through and constantly referencing pop culture, like we have to tip our hat to the master of that. Another thing that got me like right from the start is the series opens in episode one with an older DJ, a native DJ who I think is on the reservation radio station, introducing the Iggy and the Stooges classic punk rock recording, I Want to Be Your Dog. And that was just between the title Reservation Dogs and Iggy and the Stooges. I thought, yeah, I'm going to watch this. (laughs) Why did you want to start with that song? Yeah, you know, like, well, first of all, it references dogs. But second, I wanted it. By the way, that's my voice. I'm the radio DJ. Oh, no, um, I didn't realize yeah, that. Yeah, oh, that's great. Yeah, but, <laughs> you know, I, I it references dogs. But also what it really references to me is this is shaking everything up. You hadn't seen a native story on TV like this. And this is going to be punk rock. You know, get ready. It's going to have this energy. We're going to it's unapologetic and you're, we're going to drop you into it. I think that it, it, it tells people right off the bat, like this is not what you're, this is not what you thought you were going to see. When you were growing up, were you growing up like on the reservation or near the reservation? Yeah. Well, right now there are, there's the, like right now I'm live on the Muskogee reservation, which is part of Tulsa. Um, through a lot of complicated um, government policy and interactions with tribal governments that I can't go into because it'd be another show, um, it was not identified as a reservation before, but it is now. But if you look at Oklahoma, it used to be an in-territory, which was essentially one big reservation. It was, you know, and then of course oil and, and the land run and all and other things disrupted that. But that's this is where Trail of Tears ended. This is where all of the tribes that were forcibly removed by the US government, we were brought to Indian territory, which is Oklahoma now. Um, so essentially it was one giant reservation. And you know, you go an hour in any direction in Oklahoma, or 30 minutes in any direction in Oklahoma, you're going to to be in a new tribal territory with tr- different tribal languages on the stop signs and on and on and on signage in the town, um, different c- culture, different customs, and I think there's something like 38 tribes here. Um, so you grow up different when you're in Oklahoma as a native kid. You know, like I didn't feel different actually. Like I like people know native culture, people know who native people are, and it's a very diverse state. I mean, I think that not a lot of people know about Oklahoma and the diversity here. And um, I don't know, it was something that I wanted to celebrate in this show, you know, growing up in Indian Territory, uh, Oklahoma. You know, in talking about the influence of pop culture on the characters, on the young characters in your show and some of the older characters, too, the younger characters are so influenced by black pop culture, by by rap, their style of speaking. Um, I found that very interesting. And um, I'm wondering if there were many black people where you were growing up. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was, you know, mainly made up of white, native, and black people. And all of those cultures mix and 
and collide and, you know, come together. Um, you know, the people in the show, they're not acting those accents, you know, that's where they come from and that's how they, that's how they talk. Um, and, you know, as far as like rap being an influence on the culture, I don't know, I think like coming of age as rap was, you know, reaching the height of popularity in rural Oklahoma and being a native kid, we gravitated towards it. It gave native kids a culture and an identity that they could grab a hold of at a time where our own identity was a bit lost and our own identity was less celebrated. We could grab a hold of hip hop and that became something that we could uh, identify with. So in the series, you know, uh, dead loved ones return as ghosts. What are your experiences with keeping up a relationship with, you know, family, friends who have died and you want to keep in your life? Were you brought up with the idea that they are still spirits or ghosts? You know, I think that um, part of growing up in with Muskogee and Seminole culture is death is such a part of our experience. You know, it's a it's very community driven. You know, your cousins are like your brothers and sisters, your aunts are your extended parents, um, and you know, you're you're close to your elders, and everyone's you know a part of this, this tight community. And I, I was constantly at funerals. Um, someone was always passing away. And that is the big mystery and the big confusion. I think for most people, it's like, wow, like they're gone, you know? Um, and in the culture, you know, you're taught that they're not gone and that you can still speak to them and talk to them. And, and, you know, there's ghost stories and things like that. But I just grew up with this sense of magic and there's a sense of like, we can communicate, we can reach people in other places and there's ceremonies for it and there's different things. But I don't know, it's this, it's something that I'm fascinated with and I explore it as much as I can through my work. I mean, all of my films deal with death in some way. And if you look at season two, I mean, there's a, there's an episode that aired uh, called Mabel that is about the character of Laura Dannon's uh, grandmother passing away. And it's a whole episode about um, about her dying. And and they're all at the house. And it, I wrote it with the actress who plays Laura Dannon, uh, Devery Jacobs. And it, it's based on my grandma, my grandma passing away. And like the whole community came together. We were all there. The family was there every day, every night. We were with her. And people would come in and sing songs and funny things were happening outside and sad things and all, all everything. Life was happening in this one house. And that's what I try to show in this episode. In one of the episodes, Bear is learning how to be a roofer um, and isn't doing very well at it at the moment. And he's kind of brooding in a Johnny on the spot or an outhouse, whatever you want to say it is. Porta potty. Porta potty. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and the Indian spirit uh, warrior <laughs> takes the outhouse adjoining it and starts talking to Bear. And it's a really funny scene, but it has some really beautiful moments too because toward the end of that scene, the Indian spirit says, you know, we do so many things to tell the people we've lost that we love them. You know, we, we cut our hair. We put their faces and names on our T-shirts. And we want to tell them we'll miss them, but we'll be okay without them. And I thought that's really, 
that's actually very beautiful in the middle of this pretty funny scene. <laughs> right. Yeah, like this sort of confessional scene, but to, like it feels like a like a Catholic confession with with but Oh god, this, I hadn't uh, thought of that. Right. That's true. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they're and, both uh, in these little booths except that they're <laughs> toilets. <laughs> right. Um yeah, I mean I think that it was kind of goes to what I was speaking about. I mean, I think that in our communities you face death head on. And it's only when you're avoiding the fact that someone you love has passed away. That's where trouble comes and that's where it boils up inside you. And that's where you bury it and it comes out in some other negative way. And I think that we encourage and we are encouraged to face it. And part of that is it's okay to hurt. Like no one's saying like, you have to be tough, you know? Um, And part of what he's saying to Bear is, you know, it's okay, like, like, because because Bear tells him he's like, I, he feels like he's kind of getting over it, and it's like you don't get over it, you never get over it, like you go through it, like you have to go through it, you have to feel this pain, or you can't do anything with it, or it gets trapped somewhere, and so I think that that's a wise words from a silly spirit inside of a porta potty. It's like you have to go through it, and you have to feel this pain, so you come out on the other side, and you feel better, and you and you feel more whole. You know, we were talking about how many funerals you attended um, growing up on a, on a reservation. I'm, I'm wondering about suicide. You know, one of the pivotal parts of the story in Reservation Dogs is one of the teenagers, one of this group of teenagers, dear friends, you know, died by suicide. And um, they're all totally shaken by it. And it disrupts, it just changes their thinking about everything. Um did you know, I, and I know that there's a pretty high suicide rate in the Native population, in part, I think, because of poverty and of all of the, you know, generations of oppression. Um, so I'm wondering if you had to deal with a lot of suicide and how that was different from dealing with other forms of death. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, in our community sometimes... Suicide can be very taboo, and it's you know, I mean, like in a lot of communities, I think that um, you know, it's, you sort of not talked about as much, but the rates are very high within Native communities, and I think that with this show, you know, we took a lot of care in how we talked about it, but in the show, it's kind of like, you know, not talking about it is not working. Like we need to talk about it, and we need to find the right way to talk about it, and so in this show. You know, I I made sure that it wasn't sort of shock factor. I wanted to unfold what happened to him very slowly in the episode. So people were prepared for it when it happened. Um, And yeah, I mean, I've dealt with it personally. You know, I've known friends and and people in the community that have uh, committed suicide. And most Native people do. You know, I mean, we were doing this scene in the first, uh, in the pilot where all the kids were having a memorial, sort of a makeshift memorial for their friend who'd, who had died. And before we did that scene, I had all of the actors just with me. I cleared the set and we were all talking and we talked about the real people that we had lost. And, and, and almost every one of the writers and directors and the actors, all of us have a Daniel who, who, where that, that, that has happened to. You Daniel know? And, and, is the teenager in the series who dies by suicide. Right. And like we all have one or two or three. And so when I brought those kids together and the, the actors together when we were talking, we told stories about the real people that we'd all lost just to kind of 
put us back to where, where are we? What are we trying to do? Yeah, this is a comedy, but it's also, we're talking about something that is very heavy and very dramatic. And, and the comedy is how we can talk about it and how people will enjoy watching this show. But we are talking about something serious that affects our communities. Let's take another break here, and then we'll talk some more. If you're just joining us, my guest is Sterling Harjo, the co-creator as well as a writer and director of the series Reservation Dogs. This FX series is streaming on Hulu. We'll be right back after a short break. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. Let's get back to my interview with Sterling Harjo, the co-creator as well as a writer and director of the series Reservation Dogs. It's part comedy, part drama, about teenagers growing up on a native reservation in Oklahoma, wanting to escape the dead ends they face on the reservation. They're frustrated and alienated and caught between what's left of traditional native culture on the reservation and pop culture. Reservation Dogs has an all-Indigenous team of writers, directors, and leading actors. When we left off, we were talking about the traditions surrounding death and mourning on the reservation where Hardrew grew up. One of the episodes takes place as Alora, one of the teenage main characters, is at home where the community has crowded together. Everyone has come to say goodbye to Alora's grandmother who raised her and is on her deathbed. As everyone says their goodbyes to the dying elder, they sing, tell stories, cook, and eat together. In this scene, Alora asks her friend Cheese, another one of the teenage main characters, to say a prayer before they start their meal. Cheese is played by Lane Factor, Alora is played by Devery Jacobs. Hey, everybody. Uh, uh, I think we should say a prayer before we eat. Uh, Cheese, did you want to say the blessing? Um, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll say it. Would everyone please stand? Uh, okay, uh, bow your heads. Um, Okay, saying a prayer. The Lord, the Creator, He, She, They, whatever your pronouns may be, we ask you to bless this food and the people that cooked it. We know our friend Delora here is having a hard time right now as her grandma transcends into that place in the great beyond. In a galaxy far, far away. <clears throat> in our grief, we come to you in your name. Amen. Mado. 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 Okay, everybody. Humbucks. Humbucks. It's a scene from Reservation Dogs. I love the way, like, you know, Star Trek um, kind of like seamlessly blends into this prayer. It's all it, it's all like one thing to this 15 year old. Right. They're all <laughs> they're all, right. all, all part of his belief system. Um, and I love this character, this character of 15 year old cheese. And just as he said, Lord, you know, he, she, they, whatever pronouns they use when he introduces himself to people, it's always. And I use the pronouns he, him, right, his. Right. <laughs> and like right. when he says that to people, they mostly have no idea what he's talking about. Um, and I, I just think that's, you know, it's just really, really funny. Can you talk to me a little bit about that, about having him say that and why you did that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like, you know, it's an endearing quality. It's like, I, I think that there's such a debate over, 
do we say this or don't we in this country and world? And, and here you have this really kind human who says, you know, just to make things smooth and easy, it's kind of showing you how easy it is, you know, if you, if you want to. And I just think that he kind of represents some of the younger generation of us, you know, like he, it's not a big deal to him. It's not uh, a political issue for him. He's just considerate. He's also very well-read and very educated, you know, kind of stays up with pop culture, but also like loves old movies, has like all of the old, you know, references and movies and things like that. Um, he reminds me of people that I know, but I mean, you know, just to say something about Lane Factor, he, he never acted before. And he's so good, and I love his voice. I listen to voices a lot. He's got a great voice. Right, he's great, and he, he, you know, he never had acted, and he, he, he had been playing too much video games, and his mom had uh, made him take an acting class, and so he begrudgingly took his acting class, and then, you know, found out about this audition, and his mom had to bribe him with some meal to go and audition. He didn't even want to do that, you know. And then, of course, he ends up getting cast as the one of the main characters in the show. And then he was cast after that in Sp Steven Spielberg's uh, uh, latest film. He was right after season one. He went and did a Spielberg film where he played Spielberg's childhood friend. Oh, this is the <laughs> so, Fablemans, right? Yeah, the Fableman. So, pretty amazing. You're too young, probably, to have grown up on a diet of westerns on TV. But um, did you watch many westerns when you were growing up? You know, my dad watched Westerns. So, yeah, we watched some. You know, there was a way to sort of separate what was happening in the Western for me. Like, when you grow up and your grandma and your mom and your dad and everyone's native around you, and then you see this version of native people in these westerns that are just the bad guys that are faceless and sort of like the zombies you know of the western like they're just there in the way and the the white man has to sort of like exterminate them for western expansion purposes and to tame the west or whatever you know like you don't i don't recognize that as my people so it was it was it wasn't painful to watch for me you know i could separate it i do see the issues in that now you know like uh, I have to explain to my kids why they can't watch Peter Pan, you know. Um, and 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 if there was a Western on, I would have to explain to them, you know, like everything all of a sudden becomes a a, a lecture, you know, where I'm having to talk about film analysis with my children, and you know that has an effect. I mean, I I, I like to think that it didn't, but it does have an effect. I believe. Let's take a short break here, and then we'll talk some more. If you're just joining us, my guest is Sterling Harjo, the co-creator as well as a writer and director of the series Reservation Dogs, streaming on FX on Hulu. We'll be right back. This is Fresh Air. Um, can you tell us something about your parents? Yeah, my parents. Um, my dad roofed houses when I was young. Um, oh, because oh, <laughs> one, one of your main characters learns to be a roofer and then bonds with one of the people teaching him how. Right. And I've never seen that on TV, you know, or, or movies, uh, something that took place on a roof like that. And like, it was such a part of my uncles were roofers. My dad, my dad also taught martial arts since I was five. Did you learn how to fight? I did. I was a competitive fighter growing up from the age of four. I think there's video of my first fight. 
Um, my dad still teaches martial arts to this day in rural Oklahoma. Um, and my mom worked for um, the tribe when I was young for the Seminole Nation, and then worked for the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Did you uh, when she worked, she was a secretary for the chief of the Seminole Nation when I was young. You know, now what she does with the Bureau of Indian Affairs is she um, kind of oversees, like, there was so much, like, crookedness done towards Native people and land ownership and mineral right ownership. Mm-hmm. There's all of this record and things that have that have gone on since then. And my mom works in helping people kind of trying to figure out if there's land that they own that they didn't know they owned or mineral rights. Is she still alive? She is. She must be so proud of you. Oh man. My parents are so overjoyed about the show. My dad said something to me the other day after the first season came out and it's like, I can't, you know, it doesn't matter that we didn't get nominated for an Emmy. It doesn't matter that, like, what critic likes it or whatever. But, you know, what does matter, my dad, I mean, it does matter if we have critics like us, obviously. But, like, what I'm trying to say is, you know, this beats all of that. My dad one day said to me, he said, you know, you, you gave Native people a reason to hold their head up. He's like, this show has given people, Native people, a reason to hold their head up a little higher. And I mean, like, you know, to hear my dad say that is like, that's better than any Emmy that I could get. Um, and just to also see the amount of people that love this show, um, especially in my community, because that's who I made it for. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm glad everyone loves it, but I made it for my community, Native people. And, uh, you know, every year at Halloween, there's people that dress up in these like fake dime store Indian clothing and they they are quote unquote Indian for Halloween. And we've all seen that growing up. We've all seen it. And my kids are going to have to see it. But all of a sudden, after season one, people, kids started dressing up as the reservation dogs. So many pictures flooded in uh, on social media Uh of them dressed as the reservation dogs. It's something you didn't have when you were growing up. Right, I didn't have that, you know, and and it it might have made some sort of difference if I had. Um, I didn't have that, you know, but I did. What I did have was the best storytellers in the world sitting in my grandma's kitchen telling me stories about these amazing characters um, that were real and 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 or not. And I, I just try to transfer that to this show and to all my work. Of the stories that you were told when you were growing up, did any of those stories get handed down through the generations dating back to the Trail of Tears and the forced removal of natives from the land, forced removal by the U.S. government? For sure. I mean, I, um, my great-grandmother, who didn't speak a lot of English, her name was Isora Bruner. She spoke English, but she, you know, it was like she spoke more confidently in Muscogee language. But she was, uh, you know, I grew up around her, and she told us stories that were passed down from the Trail of Tears and, you know, babies that were being muffled because the soldiers would kill the babies if they um, wouldn't quit crying at night. And they, you know, suffocated the babies by accident. And so, you know, these stories kind of are always there in the background. Um, and, and I think that it, just like um, I think people from the Jewish community and survivors of the Holocaust, it instills you with this um, knowledge that um, there is evil out there. Mm-hmm. 
and there is a threat and your life can be flipped upside down, but also you can survive it. Like, like survival is possible. And, and, and as human beings, we have that capacity. Um, what language did you speak at home? English. I mean, you know, like my, um, I mentioned my, my grandmother, my great grandmother, she spoke, uh, fluent Muskogee and her husband, my great grandfather. Um, and they had a lawyer that encouraged them to not teach my grandma and her brothers and sisters Muskogee language. Um, obviously they picked up a lot and knew how to talk some, but the lawyer said that they would um, fall really behind in school and, and not be able to work and not have a good job if they didn't know English. And so my great-grandparents took that to heart and started trying to just speak English to them, um, which, you know, has diminishing effects. It, it, my, my parents don't speak um, the language they know they know a lot and can understand a lot like myself but like it's you know it's definitely a language that is um if not taken care of and if not um actively taught then it's gonna go away you know it's funny how your life like the life of so the lives of so many native americans are so similar to the lives of immigrants in america except you were here first It is your native land. Right. Um, Do you think about it that way, that it's like the immigrant experience in like your own land? For sure. I mean, I feel that like, like, you know, listening to, um, you know, like second generation people talk about their parents being immigrants and coming over. Uh, A lot of very similar things between the two, you know, between um, our families and and trying to, you know, trying to fit in and get along in a uh, country that is, that they were actually from, but had been colonized and taken over. Um, And, you know, like there's a lot of complication. I mean, my grandfather fought in World War II, you know, Uh, he was a full blood, um, full-blood Indian. And, and he wasn't even considered a citizen of the United States, you know, like he, at that point. Um, but he fought in World War II, fought, you know, got a Purple Heart, was injured in uh, Italy. And, you know, a lot of our, a lot of Native people, a lot of people fought in our wars for uh, our so-called freedom, you know. And um, I think that, I don't know, I think of my grandpa sometimes and I think, you know, what a special person and complicated thing to be fighting for a country that, like, a generation before, you know, waged war against your people, you know, and then you're you're fighting for them and helping them. I don't know. Like, it's a very, very complicated history that's, um, that, that, that has so much nuance to it. It's really hard to... It's not black and white, you know, the history. And I do explore that sometimes in my work. You know, one more thing. The comedy group that you co-founded, the 1491s, come, you know, is named after the year before Columbus landed in what is now America. What were you taught in school about Christopher Columbus? Oh, Christopher Columbus was a hero. <laughs> you know, like, it wasn't until I got to college. Is this a native school? No. I mean, it was a, it was all mixed. And... Mm-hmm. um. Uh, you know, he was a hero. 
it was he found he found this place. It wasn't until I got to college, really, that I, you know, and read a people's history of the United States and also had a teacher that talked about the real stories, you know, like it wasn't until then I was like, wow, like genocidal maniac, you know, like, uh, like how did, how, like, like how did that history get written so drastically wrong? Um, and, you know, driven by money, of course, but like, so, um, I don't know, uh, yeah, it was, it's it's been a it's a very complicated thing, Terry. Growing up native, you 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 know you 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 swallow things and then some things you let go and then some things you absorb and take head on. Which I'm sure you know exactly what I'm talking about. Sterling Harjo, it's really just been great to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you, Terry, it's for been this great. interview. Thank you for the series. I really love it, and I hope there's a season three. Awesome. Thank you so much. Sterling Harjo is the co-creator and showrunner, as well as a writer and director, of the FX series Reservation Dogs. Season 1 and 2 are streaming on Hulu. We recorded our interview in September. I'm a made man, but I'm still a menace. Have my main man rearrange your face for the dentist. You'll get graced with my presence. you get laced on my sentimental case. Bring the base to bust this place into a separate state. I've been better than all these bitter veterans. Taking spots like I'm playing Twister, but this ain't no game, mister. To my wrist, getting blisters from the ice on it. Tell my sisters don't gotta fight to see life exist. Robbing for the opportunity to flock the nest. Stock tons in my whip, Jazz 96. Cock a gun if it comes to that, but it won't. Not cause job is done before you even try to pat your stolen stash Ride around with kin, drifting on baloney skin My cousin round the way, slinging crypto for the currency It wasn't always him, I wanna see him free again Going through with something else like us on CNN <laughs> We'll continue our series of some of our favorite interviews of the year tomorrow After we take a short break, our rock critic Ken Tucker will have his year-end wrap-up This is Fresh Air as the year ends, rock critic Ken Tucker has been re-listening to and thinking about the pop music released in 2022. For Ken, the year has been defined by two releases in particular, Beyonce's album Renaissance and the debut album from the duo Wet Leg. He talks about these and more in his year-end roundup. I'm one of one. I'm number one. I'm the only one. Don't even waste your time trying to compete with me. No one else in this world can think like me. I'm twisted, how contradicted. Keep him addicted. Lies on his lips, I lick it. Unique. Beyonce's album Renaissance, released in the middle of 2022, felt like a return to at least some kind of normalcy after the pandemic years. Its celebration of disco rhythms and club culture was a way for Beyoncé to ally herself with her massive audience while also transcending it, to soar above her fans. Part of the pleasure throughout this big, bursting blast of an album was hearing Beyoncé take the air out of her own regal image, joking on the song that began this review, I'm too classy for this world. I want to play a bit from a song I didn't get to in my original review, the lush, languid, plastic off the sofa, Beyonce's words of comfort and challenge to her romantic partner in life, filled with the sort of assurances any one of us would like to hear from a loved one. Ah, we don't need the 
Beyonce's Renaissance is my album of the year, my favorite of any genre in the past 12 months. Listening within those various genres, I have to say that country music had a pretty weak year, with little that was fresh or innovative. In fact, my favorite country performance of the year was on TV. Jessica Chastain's portrayal of Tammy Wynette in the Showtime miniseries George and Tammy. Michael Shannon as George Jones? Uh, Not so much. The best music book of the year is R.J. Smith's spellbinding biography of Chuck Berry. Now, back to recordings. In hip-hop, there was Kendrick Lamar's Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers, as well as the very potent collaboration between Danger Mouse and Black Thought called Cheat Codes. Among singer-songwriters, Angel Olsen, Wise Blood, Carly Rae Jepsen, and Bonnie Raitt all released beautiful semi-autobiographical collections with vivid detailing. Blame it on me Hold up my faults All to see Truth is love's first casualty Blame it on me Blame it on me Not the way love's supposed to be How can you so casually Blame it on me That's Bonnie Raitt singing Blame It On Me from her album Just Like That. There's also an album I would classify the debut of the year, Wet Leg by the two young British women who also call themselves Wet Leg. They make an intense version of punk-influenced pop and write about sex as explicitly and as romantically as Beyoncé, but Wet Leg is doing everything on a smaller scale, aiming to be as common and relatable as Beyoncé is exceptional and aspirational. For Wet Leg, being in love is a punch-in-the-gut and a woozy condition for which their music rhymes meditate with medicate I need to lie down only just got up I feel so uninspired I feel like giving up I feel like someone has punched me in the guts but I kind of like it cuz it feels like being in At the time of my review back in April, I said that we'd need to wait to hear whether Wet Leg would turn out to be a novelty act or something with staying power. But given the rave reports of their touring performances and the ongoing rewards of repeated listenings to this collection, I think it's fair to say they've earned their place among the year's most accomplished music. Ken Tucker is Fresh Air's rock critic. You can find his year-end review on our website, freshair.npr.org. 
Tomorrow on Fresh Air, we continue our series featuring some of our favorite interviews of the year with comic, actor, and writer Gerard Carmichael. This year, he won an Emmy for his HBO comedy special, Rothaniel, that's all about secrets. Secrets about his name, his family, and his sexual orientation. It's like a hybrid of a comedy show and a therapy session. I hope you'll join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Anne-Marie Bodonato, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, Susan Yakundi, and Joel Wolfram. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Teresa Madden directed today's show. I'm Terry Gross. 